No, I am not Ryan, and I am not Jay. <laughs> oh, my name is Michael Sandoval. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here tonight. I'm one of the house church pastors. Yay, Rose Garden. <laughs> I see a couple out there. Awesome. No, it's really an honor to be here tonight, um, and it, it's, it's really humbling when you see God bring some crazy dreams that you have, sometimes as a young man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes as an older guy, but five years ago, Lori and I moved. <laughs> she's laughing. Five years ago, um, Lori and I moved back here to this to the Bay Area from Kansas City, and um, we were having dinner. We used to have dinner every Friday night with my daughter and whatever friends of hers she could drag along. We called it family dinner, and we had gone to dinner at the Prune Yard and went to the Starbucks there. And Tawny Dixon, some of you know Tawny now Tony Dollahan, um, we were at Starbucks, and she grabbed this cup, and written on the cup were these, you know, the different cups had different questions, and she grabbed the cup off it, and it said, what would you do if money was no object? And she turned at me and said, well, Michael, and without hesitation, I said I would plant a church. And then um, uh, my wife, bless her heart, says, well, where would you do that? And I said, I want to be right here. And she goes, what would it be like? And I said, it would be with, for young adults, it would be for kids, it would be college kids. I'd be right on San Jose campus or on Santa Clara campus. So, I am blown away. This is not the way I pictured it, but I'm honored, really, that I could be here and really stand before you, that something kind of crazy that really God put in our hearts a long time ago begins to be fulfilled here now. So I'm excited to be here. I hope uh, you are too. <laughs> All right, now, this is going to be new for me. This is my son's iPad. <laughs> and the last time I taught, I tried to read and it was so dark up here, I was like, I dropped my Bible and all kinds of stuff. So we're going to try this. If it doesn't work, I have my paper, the real stuff, real notes right here. So. <laughs> um, today we are starting a new series called King and Kingdom. Yeah, you can barely see it, but it's there. Um, and uh, as I kind of was thought about this, this idea came up as we were talking several months ago, and Jay, you know, said, what would you want to talk about? Let's talk about Jesus and those kind of things, and, uh, and kind of as we prepare for um, Easter, what would be on your heart? And took a couple weeks and went back to Jay and said, man, it's really on my heart, this idea of Jesus as king. You know, we've become so comfortable with Jesus in a lot of other settings, but to really call Jesus our king is sometimes challenging, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, we invite you to be a part of our evening tonight. Um, ask that you would uh, speak through me, despite uh, just <laughs> me, <laughs> but that people would hear you in the midst of what, what's said, and that your word would speak clearly. We ask this in your name. Amen. Ah, you are the man. <laughs> um, so this idea of kingdom is something that Jesus talks about lots. When you look at his teachings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, those are the stories in the Bible that tell what? The story of Jesus's ministry. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the idea of kingdom, the idea of king is everywhere. And if you look at the Old Testament, and that's the part of the Bible that was written right before Jesus came on, if you look at the Old Testament, there's these like prophetic writings that talk about this future king, that talk about this future kingdom. And despite Jesus' teaching, and despite these prophetic writings, somehow in the church we manage somehow to just kind of gloss over or skip over this idea of kingdom. We kind of say, well, I don't understand it, or it's hard to, it's hard to grasp. Um, I'll give you a simple definition. This is Ryan's definition. It's simply the rule of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is ruling, there is his kingdom. 
Because if we, want to, if we embrace the idea of kingdom, we implicitly need to you know, embrace the idea of a king. And this is a huge idea, a huge concept of what Jesus talks about. If we, embrace, if we have to embrace a, king, a kingdom, we embrace a king, the king is Jesus. We love the idea of Jesus as Savior, but we're challenged with Jesus as king. Now, I don't know what, how, how it was for you, but this is how it was for me. I grew up in the church. I, I remember receiving Christ when I was five years old. I, it was just down the street, Bascom and Lark, Lark Avenue, or uh, Los Gatos, at Slims of God Church, just, just a couple of miles away. I remember the event clearly, specifically, um, and it was a huge moment in my life. Um, you know, I thank, I thank God for that moment. Um, but in the midst of growing up in the church, you know, and you go to Sunday school, how many went to Sunday school almost every week? That was me. And you went to church at night? That was me, and you went to church on Wednesday. That was me. We were there. Um, and I thank God for that background. I really do. But it's funny what begins to happen when you sit in, some, in, in your Sunday school class with the young kids or you go to the Wednesday night service with the young kids. What do you see on the walls? Pictures of? The answer is always Jesus. If it's Sunday school, the answer is Jesus, right? <laughs> There's pictures of Jesus. Now, I think the artist didn't know where Israel was because some of the pictures I saw often had a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Israel was in the Middle East. He probably looked Middle Eastern. So I, that was always funny in retrospect. I would say, wow, that didn't seem right. But also these pictures of Jesus showed Jesus meek and mild. They showed the gentle Jesus, right? They showed Jesus with the lamb kind of draped over his shoulders, right? And this kind of wistful look in his eye. You also saw the picture of Jesus. <laughs> you've, you've seen it, haven't you? <laughs> you also, I searched. I was going to have some pictures, but I thought that might not be appropriate. This might be take it too far. But there's all kinds of awesome pictures. Search pictures or images of Jesus. You just see what I'm talking about, David brought back memories. But the other picture you see is the picture of Jesus sitting in the field. He's sitting on the rock, and the kids are all gathered around him, right, playing in the flowers. Um, but the cha- and then you kind of, then as I grew up, I began to get in, introduced to the teachings of Jesus, you know, and, and it tended to be a little bit one-sided, right? Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, and all these things about what Jesus came, and Jesus says the suffering Savior. Um, but I realized, as my view was a very limited, began, and that's my own fault. I'm not blaming the church. I'm just saying the way I began to live my life was, yeah, Jesus, my homeboy. And that's not what I, we didn't say that back then. <laughs> but it was Jesus, you know, my Savior. He came to heal me. He came to meet my needs. And I think we began to get a very limited view. And I'd suggest we begin to live our lives in a very limited way. We begin to limit our lives when that's the perspective that we have of Jesus. That, that we come here for me. Yeah, we can meet our needs, and that's such a blessing that we have awesome community. <clears throat> we have Rose Garden, South San Jose, Los Gatos, all that stuff going on, and we get a chance to have community. Oh, my mouth is so dry. But it's not just about us. Excuse me. And you know, as I was thinking about this, I began to realize that it really wasn't the teachings of Jesus, the meek and mild, that got him killed. It wasn't the teachings of gentle Jesus that drove the religious leaders of his time mad, that drove them crazy. Drove them crazy to the point that what? They plotted to have him arrested and killed. It's the fact that when he came on the scene, he began to talk about a new kind of kingdom. He began to talk that this kingdom has a new kind of king. He began to say, with power, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is at hand. He had power and he had authority right? When he spoke, 
people listen. What was that commercial? Does anybody remember that commercial? <laughs> yeah, the old the gray hairs say, yeah, there's a commercial that when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. It was the same thing with Jesus. Jesus spoke with authority to the point where he began to get just as much notice with his congregation as he did with the religious leaders because they began to feel threatened by his authority. When Jesus came and demonstrated his kingdom, he just demonstrated power, right? He had power of the wind, power of the waves. He had power to forgive sins. He had power to heal. He had power to raise the guy from the dead. So here comes Jesus demonstrating this kingdom. And the religious, <laughs> the religious leaders of the time see their kingdom, the kingdom that they have built, the kingdom that started on the right track, but the kingdom that began to get off track. And they see what they've built, and they see the contrast. Jesus was not put to death because he was saying gentle and mild and meek things. He was saying there's a different kind of kingdom, and there's a different kind of king. Wow, this is going fast. Better slow down. <laughs> what we're going to do tonight, we're going to take a look at a young man in the Bible in Matthew. If you have your Bibles, we can open to Matthew 19. We're going to read verses 16 through 26. Um, because I began to wrestle with this, and I want to put this image in your mind and, and kind of just burn this in your minds today. Because when Jesus came, he drew a line and he said, This is kingdom. This is your kingdom. This is my kingdom. This is yours. This is the way I want to picture I want to put in your mind. Every day when we get up, every day when we get started, we have set before us a choice. We have a cross or we have a throne. The cross, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It represents his death. And when Jesus was teaching, one of the teachings or one of the things he said that was repeated several times, that is, if you want to be my disciple, what? Yeah. Take, yeah, all you Sunday school people know, take up your cross. Yeah. Yeah. Take up your cross and follow me. This is huge because he's not saying let's get a tattoo. He's not saying let's get a bumper sticker. He's not saying let's get a jewelry, some nice jewelry. What he's saying is if you pick up your cross to those people at that time, that represented death. Because if somebody was told, you know, hey, Reed, pick up your cross, the end of that journey is death. Right? Because the end of that journey of taking up that cross, that was like taking, hey, let's like, hey, go get your electric chair. It's the same picture. It's, this, is the, this, is the vehicle of this is the vehicle of execution, and I'm telling you to take it up in that road. That path you're taking is leading to death. So this is, I mean, Jesus takes this serious. That's what he's saying. So here's a young man that's faced with this very choice, cross or throne. The throne, of course, I didn't explain that, but the throne is the throne of our lives. Every day we get up, and we can either get up and crawl onto that throne and sit on that throne and build our little mini kingdom, the kingdom that circulates about me, my comfort, my convenience, my security, whatever it may be, whatever my thing is. But I can choose to get up on that cross. And the challenge with that is, it's a, I mean, granted, there's, there is pain to take up your cross. But to crawl up under the throne, it's a little bit like Edith Ann. People my age remember Edith Ann. Edith Ann was a character played by Lily Tomlin, a great actress, comedian that I really loved. And she would dress in a little girl costume, with little shoes and socks and everything. She'd crawl up on this huge oversized chair, remember? And she'd tell little stories about her life. You know, it was kind of comic. I mean, you just got this visual picture of her sitting in a chair that was never really meant for her. And that's the challenge we have as we think about the throne. We're crawling up onto the throne of, of our lives, something that was really never meant for us to sit 
and build our own little mini kingdom around. So lesson, second lesson is, or first part, I want you to remember, cross and throne and don't be Edith Ann. Um, so we'll read if I can. Okay, watch this. All right, we have to go to the regular verses. It was, it was a, the, the, the verse was supposed to magically appear, and it didn't. Damn. <laughs> Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. This is the NET version, one of my favorites, but we'll read, um, so bear with me. Um, now, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you want to enter, enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he said. And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws. In Mark, it, it says, on you know, one of those other gospels, it says, I've kept these since I was a boy. But I've wholeheartedly kept all these laws. Profound question what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I tell you the truth, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were greatly astonished when they heard this and said, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, with, This is impossible for mere humans, but with God all things are possible. I, I want to make a few just quick observations about this text, some things that jump out at me. I always tend to ask questions when I look at this, when I look at Scripture. And it's interesting that Jesus, we don't get a preview into this guy's motives. Do we? A lot of times when guys come and they're questioning Jesus, it says they were there to trick him or to trap him or for him to say something that would you know, you kind of disrupt the people so that they would turn against him. And we don't get a view of his motives. So we've got to believe that this guy is really genuine when he asks, what must I do to be saved or what must I do to have eternal life? Um, uh, and another interesting, interesting, somebody say it for me. Thank you. Would you come up here and finish this for me? <laughs> you would do it too. No. Um, another observation, let's just say that, I can say that, is something must have drawn this young man to Jesus. Okay, this guy was rich. This guy was religious. And if you read Mark, you find out that he's a ruler. Mark or Luke, one of those. Say he's also a ruler. So he was powerful. He was influential. What draws him to say this? If anybody had his act together, if anybody really didn't need the gospel, it was this guy. Rich, powerful, religious. So it's interesting that he even get, I think, a window into who this guy is when he asked the question, what good must I do? So Jesus immediately attacks, not attacks, but kind of tries to undermine this guy's premise of, hey, doing good. It's about doing good. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what good? What's good? There's only one good. And that, of course, is God. So immediately he's trying to point him back to the source of holiness, telling this guy, you know what, all the external stuff you do, uh, all the, you know, checklists that you had, it doesn't mean anything in the greater economy. It's really the source of goodness is God. Um, and the issue is not an issue of performing. It's an issue of obedience, that when we have this heart of obedience and response to God, it's totally different 
That's a totally different kingdom when we're entering into that out of a heart of obedience instead of a heart of saying, I'm trying to achieve righteousness. Um, you know, then, um, so Jesus says, you know, obey the commandments, right? What are you asking me about? Good, what's good? Obey the commandments. Again, I love this gentleman's question. I mean, he, he's serious. I think he's, he's totally genuine. He says, which ones? I, at first, I thought that was kind of a snarky comment. Well, which ones? You know, yeah, right. It's probably like something my kids would say. It's not in here tonight. Um, <laughs> something that Marsha would say. Well, which ones, Dad? Uh, that's what I see him saying at first. But I think he's genuine because this guy's a, a follower of the Jewish religion. They had over 600 laws they were expected to follow. This guy's hoping for some really deep insight from the rabbi and saying, really, what's the deep issue here? What's the important stuff? And Jesus goes back to the basics. It's about the goodness of God. He's the source of all goodness, and it's about simple obedience, not this external stuff that you've been, fo- been focusing on. So I think in genuine heart, this guy's saying, which ones? And of course, Jesus just continues on. I think Jesus is trying to really set the stage to get at this guy's heart. So he says, well, keep the, he says, keep these commandments. What are they? There's five of the Ten Commandments and the extra one there, right? Don't steal, don't murder, help me out here. Don't lie, commit adultery, and honor thy mother and father. And of course, the sixth thing that he says is love your neighbor as yourself. We always think of that as New Testament. That, that goes all the way back to Leviticus. Um, so he gets five of the Ten Commandments. What's profound to me is he leaves out probably the thing that this guy's struggling with the most, covetousness. He, says, he leaves that out. Interesting thought. I don't know why. I don't see why he didn't hammer this guy at that point and say like he did and say to this guy, weren't you listening to me at the Sermon on the Mount? What does he say there? He says, you've heard don't commit an adultery. I say don't, don't look on somebody with lust. You say don't murder. I say don't, don't hate. If I was Jesus at this point, I would have won the argument. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would have won. I would have said, this is what it's all about. But Jesus is in his grace, in his mercy, is trying to open this guy's mind, open this guy's heart, so that he can see what's really going on. So, he tells, so um, Jesus gives him his, these commands. He says, obey these things. And what does the guy say? Man, I've been doing that. The NET adds wholeheartedly, and I think that's an awesome addition when he says, I've obeyed all these laws. In Luke, or Mark or Luke, whichever one of, one of those other things, it says, it says that he's been obeying these things since he was what? A boy. Yeah, since I was a kid. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus is trying to open him up, open his heart, and let him get a vision of what's really going on inside his heart. So the guy says, man, I've been doing all these things. I've been keeping all these laws since I was a boy and wholeheartedly. And I think this guy is genuine in what he's saying. I don't think he's just blowing smoke. He's saying he's really trying to do this. Um, let me catch up with my notes, make sure I'm uh, not skipping anything really profound here. No, we're doing good. Man, I have to slow down. <laughs> um, so I love the way that Jesus, so this guy says, man, I've been doing this. I've been doing this wholeheartedly since I was a boy. And, I, I, and, and he has this profound moment, and I think this is, is deeply profound, that despite his true, genuine feeling like, yeah, I've been doing this, the young man feels a sense of unrest. The young man feels lacking because he candidly and straightforwardly says, what do I lack? 
And I know that for me, growing up in the church, I know what it's like to have a checklist. I know what it's like to really feel like, yeah, I can do this. But there's a whole different attitude when you say, man, I'm just submitting to the king, and there's a rest that comes over our hearts, and we simply say, God, what are you asking of me at this moment, at this time? There's a whole different sense, a whole different feel of kingship that comes into our lives Verse, you know, when we are simply submitting and surrendering to Christ and to his kingship, as opposed to saying, yeah, I've done my thing, because I can do my list of good things, and I can totally close my heart off from God. And that's what happened to those Jewish leaders at the time. And that's why Jesus, at the very beginning of this exchange, wants this young man to see a picture first of God, there is none good. And then he wants this young man to see a picture of himself. You truly are lacking. As long as you're struggling and trying to fulfill a checklist, you will have a sense of lack in your heart. You will never be fully fulfilled. So Jesus, of course, challenges, challenges, then challenges this guy. <clears throat> he says, man, if you want eternal life, do what? Sell it all and give it away. That's easy for me to say because I don't have too much. A couple of broken down cars and a house, you know, that, that would be easy. But when somebody as this guy has great wealth, it's a lot different story, and it's really not about wealth at all. That's not the issue, right? Because it may not be your issue and your issue or your issue. See, Jesus treated this like guy somewhat differently, like I said at the beginning. He, he treats this guy differently. To Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, he says, you need living water. To the religious leaders, he says, man, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. But to this guy, he says, sell everything. Because Jesus is after, for all his effort and for all his energy, he's trying to tear us down off the thrones of our lives. Not because he's a tyrannical leader, and this is huge. Jesus is calling us to this surrender. This moment when he says, sell all you have is the most loving moment. Probably the most loving moment this guy's experienced in a long time. Because God is, Jesus is given an opportunity to see what's really going on. That's love. So he, he closes the story, at least this part of the story, uh, in verse 22 there where he says, you know, the guy does what? He walks away sad. When I was talking about this uh, story with <laughs> Ryan, he goes, dude, that's a downer, man. You're going to have to end it some other way. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's true. And, and I'll be honest with you. If some of you leave tonight sad, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if you're sad because you're being challenged and you're getting a chance to say, what does it mean? What's going on in my heart? If we're really saying, what do I lack? I can, I'm saying this not because I got it together and I'm sitting here trying to preach at you, though it probably sounds like it. I'm saying this because God's been beating me up with this. Since I mentioned this to Jay weeks ago, I've been trying to process it. What does it mean to say, King Jesus? What does that mean? This guy knew because in God's love, in Jesus' love for him, he opens that window to his heart. We can easily say and sit here and say, dude, you had the most awesome opportunity. You were face to face with Jesus. And you go away sad. But at least this guy had integrity. Can I suggest that I 
and I'll tell you the truth. I sit here week after week, and I hear sermons about dreaming huge dreams and getting the guts to go after those dreams and trusting God that he is able. And I hear, story, you know, I hear teachings about stereo and just letting the platform of my life be one of love. And I go out that door, and I do the same thing that I've always been doing. How is that any different than this man being face-to-face with Christ? It's not. And I say this to myself, so bear with me. (laughs) So here's what I want you to take away. It has a positive side to it, because if you read more, it's all good. It is good. It's possible. But what I want you to take away, if we really want to live our lives to the fullest, if we want our lives to be the best, then we must relinquish the thrones of our lives to Christ, to the kingship of Jesus. If we want our lives to be their fullest, then we must relinquish the throne. And we must, and at the heart of this is getting a hold of the fact that it's Jesus' love that's calling for that surrender. See, this is not a tyrant that's saying, come follow me. This is not me saying, you all come follow me. This is the perfect king, the perfect savior saying to us, I've provided a way for you to have a relationship for, with me, but I also have this incredible serious side of, man, I really want it all. I want all of your heart. I didn't do this for fun. I did this because I want all of you. I didn't do this to share the throne with you. It's not a love seat. It's a throne. It's meant for one. So it's Jesus' love that calls us to that surrender, to that relinquishing. And then if we go on, uh, I skipped over these verses or didn't kind of talk about them in depth, but I love this last little section here in, in the, of the Scripture, verses 23 to 26. Um, Jesus says, man, I tell you the truth, it's, it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Can I suggest that if that young man was sitting here today, I don't think he would stand out. I think he would look like you and he'd look like me in our culture today. Because really, in the global scheme of things, we are incredibly rich. We are incredibly influential. (laughs) And we're incredibly, incredibly religious. (laughs) And we come here and we hear these things. And God's saying, listen, it's impossible for those that don't see their need for the gospel to be saved. We need to see God for who he is. We need to see ourselves for who we are. But the important thing is that Jesus says this is impossible. In the, in the disciples' mind at that time, the rich were the ones that were really blessed. Richness represented God's blessing. So they were blown away that those that were supposedly blessed couldn't get into the kingdom. But this is the key, and this is where I want to leave us. This is, thank, thank you, Ryan, because <laughs> he said, no, you need to know this. Don't need to know the downer part. Um, but it's true. Um, this is possible, right? What does Jesus say? With man, this is, but with God, anything's possible. Jesus can take the most messed up Edith Anns that are sitting here like a selfish, stubborn little kid, kicking and screaming, and he's trying to pull us off the throne, um, and he can make that possible. He can do it. With his help, you can do it. I know this sounds kind of serious, and I mean to be, um, But I also want to be totally hopeful. I want you to be filled with hope that, yes, you can. And here's what I want you to do. This is what I want you to take away. 
Um, honestly ask Jesus, what do I lack? Or in other words, what's keeping me on the throne? Seriously, honestly, genuinely, be like this young man and ask, what do I still lack? What's keeping me on the throne? Then what else I want you to do is honestly and genuinely ask Jesus to give you courage. Because even in this mental picture of surrender, we can get really religious, we can get really goofy in the way we do things, and we can think, yeah, Jesus, look what I'm doing, when it's really just a matter of simple obedience, a matter of love and devotion, and then in response of surrender. So those two things, ask, man, what do I lack? What's keeping me on the throne? And then ask God to give you courage to embrace and take up that throne, take up that cross, rather. Don't take up the throne. Be killer. <laughs> but ask what it means to take up the cross. And I promise you, I can't promise you that we'll know why everything happens. I can't promise you that it'll all suddenly become perfectly crystal clear and your life's going to be like awesome. But I can promise you that if you take up the cross and you embrace this king, your life will never be the same. I promise you, life will be better than you ever could have imagined. Maybe more painful. But there's something about this kingdom, we're going to talk about, Jay's going to talk about next week, that this kingdom wants to invade your time, your space. And your life will always feel like it lacks as long as you decide to sit on the throne. I don't know how to end this thing, so Shamina, why don't you come on up? <laughs> um, and um, while she's coming up, I would, or your group, um, I want to pray for you. I want you all just to take a minute. I did this with House Church a couple weeks ago. And a, kind of a similar idea here. It's just, just, let's just take a minute. Just everybody take a deep breath, because I need to take a deep breath. Um, take a deep breath, and just let it go. And take a moment and just close your eyes. And I want you to picture what it would be like, one thing in your life that would be different. Just one. If you were sold out, totally surrendered, off the cross of your life. Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and ask God to show you one thing. And then I want you to take another deep breath, and this is where you really have to imagine, but imagine what it would be like if you had a house church full of people that were sold out to the kingship of Jesus. Keep your eyes closed. <laughs> Take another deep breath. Think of what it would be like if your home, what it would be like if you were sold out to the kingship of Jesus. And then ask yourself, what keeps me from doing that? <laughs>